everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Arlington, Virginia Commonwealth Attorney Parisa Delgani Tofti, who in November overwhelmingly was elected prosecutor. She ran on a progressive campaign centered on criminal justice reform during a contentious and very expensive primary in which she was opposed by the incumbent prosecutor Theo Stamos and achieved a surprising upset in the primary with a 52-48 outcome. Welcome to the show, Parisa. Thank you for having me, Daniel. So um, what is your background uh, prior to becoming a prosecutor? So I have spent uh, most of my career uh, actually fighting for people who are innocent and convicted of crimes that they didn't commit. Uh, And I got into that work and, in fact, decided to go to law school because a good friend of mine was convicted of a crime that he didn't commit while we were in college. Um, I saw it as a problem that I could solve, and so I decided to to put my skill set to use um, by going to law school. Uh, when I finished law school, I worked on a lot, of, or even in law school, I worked on a number of death penalty cases, and I uh, was a public defender in D.C. as well, uh, and you know came came to all of this from the perspective of trying to avoid wrongful convictions, but also trying to avoid the causes of wrongful convictions, like junk science, uh, like uh, sort of plea bargaining tactics, like, you know, making sure that we have uh, good eyewitness identifications uh, and making sure that we have true procedural uh, due process. And then why did you end up running for the prosecutor position? Um. I, so it was a slow sort of uh, process for me to decide to run. I had become fairly politically active in 2016 and uh, was knocking on doors and and doing what I could do um, in that presidential election and was distraught by the results of that and tried to find ways uh, to do more. And the first way was I created my own sort of indivisible group uh, where it was you know, the local moms in my neighborhood and 
we got together and talked about issues and called our legislators. And then I became involved with the local democratic committee. And as I was doing that, I was looking, you know, really at what we could do locally to to change things. And I've been doing things to help families uh, individually, but I saw this as a way, really for prosecutor, as a way to really sort of help people in a much broader scale. And I was not a political beast in particular. Um, I certainly had never planned to run for office. But uh, as I was looking around, hoping that somebody else would do it uh, and run so that I could uh, throw my support behind them and work like crazy to get them elected, uh, people kept coming back to me and saying that I should do it. And so I started thinking about it. And I spent a good year talking to folks and you know, trying to figure out what exactly the problems were and uh, where the support would come from. And so I before I announced, I've been sort of investigating and working and building up support for a good 10 months. Um, and ultimately, I decided this is where I could have the most impact and, you know, make, create a criminal legal system that reflects the values of Arlington. It's really amazing. I've been talking to prosecutors and prosecutor candidates from all over the country, and so many of them say this exact same thing. They were looking for someone else to run, couldn't find someone <laughs> else, so they ran. Uh, I thought I was unique in that, and it turns out that many of my uh, reform colleagues are in exactly that position. Yeah. And I, I, think it's, I think it's important, though, because I think it's an interesting moment in history, I think, when people are seeing that it's a good thing for people who are not the usual suspects to run. And it's a good thing for people who run who haven't spent their entire lives crafting the narrative that they need to move from one level to the next. Um, you know, it, when people ask me, well, what's your, what's your plan? What are your future plans? My response is to do a really good job. And, and I think that that's the sort of unique period that we're in where you know we're not looking at career politicians doing things to advance their own careers but rather really doing things to change their communities now obviously the world has changed a little bit in the last few weeks but what has the first few months been like for you this is actually the best job in the world um on a macro and macro level, and I am thoroughly enjoying it. And it's because I can do big things like work on restorative justice. Um, uh, we have a, the NEA Casey was generous enough to loan the county an executive for a year to help us set up a restorative justice program. And so I'm working closely with her to, to uh, get that started. On a community-wide level, so that schools can refer kids to restorative justice and implement sort of restorative practices within the schools and for discipline, so that the community can have a resource available to it to refer each other and themselves um, to try to sort of shrink the footprint of the legal system, and also for the for people who are court involved. Um, to be able to have, uh, you know, 
for victims to be able to have a way of expressing what their needs are and, and, and you know, giving voice to what they need to heal. Um, and for uh, people who've done the harm to be able to, to make things right um, to the degree that they can and to also transform themselves into people who don't do that, that harm again. Um, on a day-to-day basis, in contrast, you know, we are in court every single day fighting for individuals to not uh, have cash bail imposed. And so it's amazing to see that you know, people are not sitting in jail just because they can't afford to pay their way out. Uh, and, you know, we've helped uh, advance due process by, change, you know, creating a discovery process whereby we are basically providing open discovery and making sure that, that victims and, and witnesses are safe by doing, you know, disclosing their information only under protective orders, but basically, you know, providing discovery so that people can actually defend their clients. So I want to get back to restorative justice because I find this so fascinating. So it was 10 years ago um, in, in my hometown, there was a, police incident where uh, there were college students that were protesting and they got pepper sprayed by a police officer as they sat on the ground. Mm-hmm. And um, a, a guy comes into a public meeting and says, hey, we need to have a restorative justice process. And I had never heard of restorative justice up until that point. And now I talk to people all over the country, and that's like one of the first things that they're implementing. It's a massive sea change here. Um, I mean, I don't know what to say about others, but what I can say is that um, for me, this has been something that I've always looked for, and particularly in the sense that, so I myself am a survivor, um, of sexual abuse and I never reported until many years later and part of the reason why I didn't was because I had a sense even as a child that the legal system was not going to fix what needed to be fixed and that it would in fact probably end up doing more harm uh, than I was willing to cope with and so for me I had always looked for something to try to to rethink um, the way that, that that victims need healing and to try to give them some kind of real say in, in what they need um, instead of the sort of false promises that I think that the legal system gives us that you know that you know we'll be satisfied if somebody gets X number of years in prison and uh, it's usually after that process that healing even begins to happen. Uh, so when I had heard about what Danielle Surratt, for example, was doing um, with Common Justice in Brooklyn, uh, I, I was inspired and it's something that I wanted to try to, to bring to Arlington. Um, what other programs have you been able to implement so far? Um well, I mean, as I said, you know, we're not, you know, we stop asking for cash bail. And so whenever we are in court on a daily basis and, you know, arguing, um, we don't just 
punt, like take the can and let the, the you know, leave it to the discretion of the judge. We actually aff- affirmatively state our our position, which is that you know, if somebody is a flight risk or danger, then we ask them to be held, and if they are not, then we ask for them to be released on conditions. Um, we've started to look internally at uh, what data we the office has traditionally collected, which is not very much, and what data we need to collect going forward in the future so that we can uh, actually show our work and make sure that the progress that we are making is actually progress and that it is, in fact, uh, serving the ends that we want to serve. And so I've been working on a number of data projects and um, you know, we're working on restorative justice and we're working on discovery and uh, to, to sort of make it fair and open. Um, and what we've really done is change the philosophy of the office. And, and we've done that by sort of, you know, laying out principles that uh, we follow. And some of those are principles like, and I, you know, and I have to give my colleague in Charlottesville full credit for this this one uh, but when when I was talking to him at one point he said you know one of my principles is that I don't I don't want to make people felons if I don't have to and so that's one of the guiding principles that we have it's that you know if somebody is not already does not already have a felony charge what can we do to get them what they need so that they don't end up with a felony charge and you know we're trying to try to come up with outside of the box solutions for things that involve you know alternative things anything alternative to punishment uh, if we can. And so those are those are just some of the guiding principles that that we have implemented. Now you had mentioned uh, your passion on wrongful convictions, and I actually learned a a bunch about the Virginia criminal justice system because I did a couple of uh, podcasts on uh, wrongful convictions that came out of Virginia recently. Um, and there are some interestingly archaic uh, criminal justice rules. For instance, uh, there's no parole in, in Virginia. So whatever you're sentenced to, you have to serve that. Um, how have you... Uh, found that to work and uh, are there efforts underway to reform that? Uh, well, yes, I would have liked to see actually more from the legislature on that particular issue. Uh, we did abolish parole in Virginia uh, a number of years ago. And um, I think that what that has done is you know overcrowded the prisons, overcrowded the prisons with uh, an aging population, and really, it's taken, I think, a lot of the incentive to rehabilitate oneself, and the incentive for the the government to create programming for rehabilitation purposes away. And so, I would like to see a lot more done on that in the next legislative session. There were a number of bills that you know. Were, would abolish parole that would, you know, give good time credits um, for folks who, you know, were completing certain programming. 
um, I would like to see a lot more in terms of incentives for, for people to demonstrate rehabilitation and uh, have a mechanism to take a second look. I mean, parole may not be exactly the right mechanism, but it would be good to have a mechanism to take a second look because right now, and you know, going back to sort of the interesting way that Virginia works, I can't take a look at uh, somebody who has a sentence that is extraordinarily long. The only the only person who can do that is the governor through the parole board, um, and they can they can issue conditional pardons for folks who are not innocent, but you know were sentenced to extraordinarily long sentences. And, and Governor Terry McAuliffe did that for a few folks on his um, during his tenure, but you know, I can't. And if somebody writes to me saying, you know, they got 50 years, you know, for for something that they really didn't deserve to get that, that amount of time for, or if they are rehabilitated, there's no mechanism by which a local prosecutor can take a look at that case and, you know, and, and ask for it to be resentenced. And I would like to see that mechanism put in place. And then, you know, it's, been a while, but uh, a long time ago, I actually lived in Arlington County right after I graduated from college. Um, but I'm wondering what it's like these days and, and what types of issues that you see a lot. Um, so I love Arlington because of its very interesting history. I mean, looking at it, you would think that it's, you know, a typical wealthy maybe sleepy suburb of, of D.C., right? But when you look at the history that has been here, both good and bad, you know, uh, you have on the one hand the fact that there was a thriving freedman community during and after the Civil War um, on what used to be the Custis and Lee properties, um, which was then, of course, shut down because the the in part at least because of the, the voting power of the residents was making a difference in local elections. Um, and it was shut down and turned into Arlington Cemetery. But at the same time, you know, the residents who lived in Knox and, um, and it was just Mount Green Valley, uh, you know, really some of them stepped up and gave land away to the folks that were being displaced. Um, you know, you have uh, you know, what, the very first public school to desegregate in Virginia, in Arlington, that's sitting smack dab in the middle of a neighborhood that had racial covenants. And uh, you, you have, so you have Arlington leading in that way, you have Arlington leading in desegregating lunch counters with our local hero, Joan Mulholland, um, and the prosecutor who chose not to charge her uh, uh, or, or her compatriots um, for violation of the um, the uh, laws that prohibited uh, interracial. Uh, oh, I'm completely blanking out on what they're called. The prosecutor, who, uh, uh, the public, the prosecutor who didn't uh, prosecute the violation of the public assembly laws at the time. I think that you see a lot of that contradiction still in Arlington. It's incredibly diverse, incredibly vibrant, uh, you know, incredibly wealthy and incredibly politically engaged. 
so you have a real forward thinking element um, of Arlington uh, that I think, so I mean, you have this really forward thinking element in Arlington that I think made it easier to, for the community to embrace change in the criminal legal system when they really realized, you know, the truth of what was happening. And it's interesting because Virginia itself has gone through uh, major changes. I mean, it went from uh, really a red state when I was there to, uh, would you consider it a blue state at this point? I think it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it statewide, yes. Um, but there are definitely sort of wide land expanses of red. Um, but I think if you look at the population, that the population is trending blue. And I think part of that is the degree of engagement that has happened over the last really decade, but especially in the last three, four years. So I really like the quote, um, I don't want to make people felons if we don't have to. Um, and I see that as kind of the rallying cry for mass incarceration. Uh, the question I guess I have is, how do you operationalize that? Hmm, that is a good question. Um, I mean, it's obviously on a case-by-case -case basis. But I think it's, I think it's a change in philosophy and I think it's a change in philosophy that requires that, you know, we recognize that not every social problem should be a crime and that not every social problem or not every crime should result in punishment and that not every punishment is necessarily incarceration and that not every instance of incarceration should be so long and so punitive that it doesn't leave room for re for redemption and rehabilitation. And so, you know, I look at a case, for example, of somebody that did a, 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 a pretty awful thing, but, you know, it turns out the, the underlying reason is because of a substance abuse issue and an, and an undiagnosed mental illness. Um, and so the normal system that we had before would have just criminalized that behavior, adopted a zero tolerance policy and put them in in jail but that doesn't really help that person and it doesn't really help society either because if you think about it he and like 95 percent of the people that end up in prison are going to be released and so the question is you know what we have control over what somebody is like when they're released um and so you know you you oper you know you operationalize that philosophy by looking at this individual and saying what is actually going to help this person um chances are you know a, a fairly long period of supervision which you know for me two years is a long time um but a, a period of supervision that helps the person get the mental health treatment that they need and that, you know, isn't sort of itching to lock the person up if they, if they slip and fail a little bit um, in terms of treatment or, or substance abuse. 
so I think it's looking at each individual and really working with the defense and with victims to identify what will actually be helpful and what will minimize the damage and trauma to the victims, to the community, and to the individual. It's hard work. I mean, it's not easy, and it takes a lot more time. Now, you you mentioned that your approach is on a case-by-case basis, and in a lot of ways, you know, the criminal justice system operates on a case-by-case basis. But I'm wondering, have you tried to establish overall guidelines to guide your prosecutors on how to approach each case? Um, I, we do have guiding principles, and um, we, they're, as time goes on, becoming more detailed, but you can't cover every single case uh, that ever comes up. But the, the guiding principles are you know, to really weigh what is the public safety value in prosecuting the case. And it's funny because the ABA guidelines actually say, well, prosecutors shouldn't prosecute everything just because there's evidence for it. What should be weighed is a whole panoply of things, including the deterrence value of a prosecution, the public safety value of prosecuting this crime, you know, the racial disparities that that are existence in the system, um, and, you know, a whole series of other considerations. And so my attorneys know that, that what we're focused on is trying to be surgical about what we put our resources into so that we can continue to put as many resources as we can into the cases that have a real public safety value um, in terms of prosecution. And then, you know, divert resources to experts who know what they're doing when it comes to mental health and substance abuse. Have you had a lot of buy-in from uh, the prosecutors in your office to these changes? Uh, so about two-thirds of the prosecutors in the office um, are stayed on. And um, I have been in just amazed at the leap of faith that they took and to choose sort of thinking about things in a different way um, and how hard they've been working uh, alongside me and alongside the, the new folks who joined the office. And so, yeah, I, I think there's been a lot of buy-in and a lot of willingness to reevaluate the way that things are done and a lot of excitement about trying to create a different paradigm for the criminal legal system. And they're fantastic. They've all been working so hard, and they're fantastic. And so I can't, I can't give them enough shout-outs about how, you know, sort of cohesive a team that they've been, and how each individual has just, you know, picked up a shovel and gotten to work. How has your office attempted to reduce racial disparities in the criminal justice process from really, you know, the level of arrest? all the way through to sentencing. Right. Uh, we, so we can't control the rest, um, but we are right now in the process of gathering data about what 
what had happened in the past to the extent that we can. Um, and I keep saying to the extent that we can because our systems, you know, they're, they're, they're imperfect. And so uh, it's, it's, it's going to take a deep dive into a sample set of cases rather than being able to just, you know, click a few buttons and generate data. And we're also looking at ways to gather data going forward. And that includes, you know, collecting information on race, collecting information on gender, not just of the defendant, but also of victims. Because, you know, there's a widespread concern that, you know, sexual assault victims um, that are black women are not heard and not listened to and not believed as much. And so we're trying to analyze that as well to make sure that we are treating victims and uh, fairly as well. And we're also looking at the race and gender of the prosecutors as well as the defense attorneys to make sure that those are not things that are um, infecting the system. And you know, once we have a good data set and we see sort of what the trends are, we'll be in a better position to figure out what to do about them. But right now, we're, for the time being, we're trying to be cognizant of, you know, for example, you know, at a bail hearing, if somebody has a long record, you know, we're not just looking at the record to make a bail determination. Um, we're trying to look at the whole person, understanding that, you know, sometimes people, because of the color of their skin, will have a different sort of record than similarly situated people. Um, I'm working on with some community faith leaders on a program to provide mentorship and support for uh, folks who either don't have, you know, family networks or um, have dysfunctional family networks uh, or simply, you know, don't have the, the connections because of uh, their financial and socioeconomic situation so that we don't have a situation which, you know, quite literally has seen in the office of one person who made a mistake and was lucky enough that they didn't have much of a record. They got out on bail. They spent months out on bail. And during that time period, their family was able to support them. They had their family had friends who had businesses. And so they were able to get employment through this business. And they were really able to show that they turned themselves around. Whereas somebody whose family doesn't have those connections wouldn't be in a similar, it wouldn't be able to show that they turned things around. Um, and knowing that, you know, I'm working with community leaders to try to create mentorship networks so that those folks who don't have means can actually have some of the same benefits as people who do. That was a very long-winded answer. That's fine. Um, so I want to move on to uh, wrongful convictions because you mentioned you got into this really uh, over wrongful convictions, and interestingly enough, so did I. Um, I was asked to uh, cover a case uh, 10 years ago, and uh, the guy ended up getting a 378-year sentence, and as we looked Ooh. into it more and more, uh, we realized that not only was the sentence ridiculously long, but um, he's innocent. And so 
that has uh, led to a whole new career, uh, interestingly enough. Uh, but I'm wondering what your office uh, is, is doing for wrongful convictions, understanding that Virginia is really limited in what it can do. You're right. It is limited. Um, and particularly prosecutors' office are, offices are limited because if somebody writes to us saying, or if an a innocence organization writes to us saying, look, we have proof of innocence, we can't just go into court with that person and agree that they're innocent. Um, you know, those, those kinds of cases go straight to the Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court of Virginia. And so there is no local jurisdiction over those cases. Just like there's no local jurisdiction over resentencing somebody. So what I'm doing is cooperating with the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project and with any innocence project that, that reaches out or any individual that reaches out. If somebody is asking for files, um, I'm perfectly happy to turn over the, the files so that they can review them. And I have done. Uh, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, the files have already been destroyed before I ever got into office. And so there's some difficulty in locating the evidence and information, but uh, I am working with Innocence Projects uh, and cooperating with them and also contemplating creating, uh, maybe with my colleagues, uh, like Vita and Steve and Brian in Alexandria, working together to create some kind of a regional innocence project or innocence, um, excuse me, working together with my Northern Virginia colleagues to create some kind of a conviction review project so that maybe we could look at each other's cases if somebody is making a claim of innocence or help each other out and, and work for grants together. Ultimately, with the goal of making a recommendation maybe to the attorney general's office because the attorney general would then be litigating the case. Uh, so, that, I mean, that's, that's what we're doing. We're actively cooperating and helping individuals with projects who are, are writing to us with claims. And then overall, um, have you encountered obstacles to the kinds of changes that you're trying to make? Uh, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> um, I think it's important to understand that uh, there are going to be there's going to be resistance and obstacles because in as far as everyone's living memory goes, every single person who's occupied the CA's office in Arlington has come up through the ranks of that office, and so one. Commonwealth attorney was was essentially succeeded by another one who was trained by them. And so it's been the case that in the last over 50 years, not a single outsider has come into the office. And um, that, you know, everybody who did come into the office was a prosecutor and was trained by their predecessor to some degree. And my election broke those rules. You know, I, I, I'm an outsider. I'm an outsider who comes from a non, a, a, you know, a, an outsider who comes from a different background than prosecutors traditionally come from. Um, and, you know, and I'm a prosecutor who comes in with a background that has been 
really committed to reform. And, you know, so, yes, the community voted for change, uh, but in the institutions and the people who are in those institutions don't often change as quickly as community, um, which, you know, directly elects the prosecutor. You know, so yes, there's been there's been obstacles, and you know, I've been working my hardest to build bridges, um, both with you know with with law enforcement and the other institutions and stakeholders. Well, very good. I want to thank you so much for coming on our show and sharing all your great work in Arlington, Virginia. Thank you. This has been time. Thank you. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. We'd like to thank Arlington, Virginia Commonwealth Attorney Parisa Degani Tofti, who was elected in November, another great reformer candidate uh, who has taken office and made great strides to change the criminal justice system. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales of everyday injustice. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.